Well, we are in Acts, we're in Acts chapter 7, which is the longest sermon recorded in Acts. And it's not a sermon by Paul, it's not a sermon by Peter, it is a sermon by a guy called Stephen, which is interesting and it presents some unique challenges from a preaching perspective because on the one hand, the book of Acts is a narrative, it's a story, and usually you interpret and preach from a narrative one way, but we're paused in this moment where it's actually a sermon. And so you preach from a sermon in a, in a different way. But then again, Stephen's actually re- referring to more narrative in the Old Testament. So it's back to a narrative again. Although he's not providing sort of a rich narrative, he's giving a broad sweep, a, a summary, an overarching narrative. So it's not just a narrative, it's a summary. So he spends 50 verses explaining in his sermon, which uh, if we were to recap, Stephen's been arrested. He's been doing incredible signs and wonders. Uh, There's been miracles through his hand and through his faith. And he's also been refuting these people who are from the synagogue of the the freedmen who have been arguing with him over uh, certain points. And we've seen that Stephen in my opinion, probably even to a greater extent than the, rest, than, the, than the apostles, has a clarity and foresight of understanding about the implications of the gospel. Because he is so steeped in knowledge of the scriptures and so close in communion and in relationship with God that he's able to see in a much further distance the implications of the gospel message. Because at this point in time, that the apostles' preaching is one of, you killed Jesus, God made him the Messiah, uh, you need to repent and, and believe. God raised him up and we need to believe in that. Whereas Stephen is going around saying things like, we don't need a sacrifice at the temple anymore because Jesus is fully the sacrifice. We actually, it doesn't matter that we are you know, Jews or, or non-Jews because actually it's about faith. That counts. And so Stephen is accused of a number of points of, of blasphemy, which include uh, blaspheming against God, blaspheming against the temple, and saying that he wants to change the customs of Moses, which were delivered to us. And so if we were to take this sermon as a whole sweep, which would be difficult because we would spend a lot of time reading and we wouldn't really be able to dive into any of the details, but if we were to take it as a long sweep, we would see that Stephen is basically answering these uh, questions. He's basically answering the point to say, well, you've told me that I'm blaspheming God. Well, look, I believe just as much about God as you do. Here's the story of the Old Testament. He's saying, you're saying that I blaspheme this holy place, the temple, but look, I'm going to show you that from the Old Testament, God's dwelling place was never meant to be the temple. It was never meant to be a a place built with with hands. We're going to see in a couple of weeks when he's going through uh, past the story of Moses and then David says to God like God man I just want to build you a house like I love you so much I just want to build you a house and then God's like that's cute uh, I don't need one but thank you and um, your son's going to build me a house and it'll be pretty great for a while and so Stephen is, is saying that I'm not blaspheming against this holy place like God actually always intended to live inside of us and to dwell inside of us more than that God was with our fathers and patriarchs wherever they were right notice the first thing in this story it says that the God of glory appeared to Abraham in Babylon God met him there and he was present with him there and it took him a long journey of faith and of growing before he got to the place where the uh, promise was And then he's accused of uh, wanting to change the customs of Moses to do with sacrifice and everything like that. And then he quotes some scripture from the Old Testament which says, you know, you didn't sacrifice to me in the desert. 
Right? You were wandering around you know, in, the, in the tabernacle. You didn't need to sacrifice to me there. It's not about sacrifice. And so this sermon as a whole is Stephen dealing with these accusations, but we get to just zoom in on a couple of different moments. And we are, we, last week we heard of the story of Abraham, who is kind of the patriarch, the start, the father of faith. And then we fast forwarded, you've got Abraham, and then the next generation is Isaac, and then you've got Jacob, good. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and he has 12 sons. He actually has 13, I think. But they, his sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's his family, through the story of Joseph, that end up finding their way in, uh, into Egypt. And they settle in a, a region in Egypt called uh, Goshen. And then they grow from there and become large enough that uh, Pharaoh enslaves them. And then that's what leads to the Exodus later on. So Stephen's traced through. He's gone from Abraham. All right, and then now he gets to the story of Joseph. But it's incredibly abridged. It's, it's so shortened that I'm not quite sure what to, to, to pull out of it because Stephen covers 13 chapters of Genesis in a mere seven verses in his passage. So what we're going to do tonight is, is more sort of uh, speak out of some principles that we can see in Stephen's story and some principles that we can see in Joseph's story. And we can see that in all things, we have a faithful God. So let's have a read. If you've got a Bible, Acts chapter 7, we're going from verse 9 and we'll go through to verse 16. It says, And the patriarchs, that is, the sons of Jacob, that whole sort of group, the 12 brothers at this point. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor. In Shechem. Now, one of the things that is very clear about Stephen is that his, his knowledge and his recall and his memorization of Old Testament scripture, or at that point, it's just scripture, right? There's no such thing as the New Testament at this point. So it's just scripture. His knowledge of scripture is incredible. It's, it's deep, it's, it's thorough, it's rich. But what we probably can't see at this, in our translation is that for a lot of these points in time, he isn't just summarizing, he's actually quoting verbatim from uh, the Old Testament. So it's not just about him knowing the story and knowing the general gist. He knows word for word. He's memorized these passages and is able to report them from memory. Now, in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised because it's pretty well known that uh, Jews, if you were, uh, received a Jewish education through the synagogue, that was the main substance of your education. It was about studying and memorizing and learning the, uh, the Old Testament scriptures, uh, and that could have been done in, in Hebrew uh, or even in 
Greek, depending on where you were and, and what leaning the, the synagogue you were in had. But the point is, we shouldn't be surprised that he knows the Old Testament scriptures so well. He, he devoted so much of his time and his life growing up to knowing these things. And I think if we were to take a bit of a survey here, at you know, who believes that it's valuable to memorize scripture, I think probably all of us, if, if we're people who you know, love God and, and believe in Jesus, would probably say, well, yeah, it's, it's certainly valuable to memorize scripture. And then it would be very uh, awful of me to, to follow that question up with how much scripture have you memorized? Because, it, it, I mean, I, I would feel the same way about, oh, not enough. Why is it? We understand that it's very valuable to internalize, to digest, and to, and to know scripture. And yet, it's so difficult for us to actually in, uh, get the patterns and behaviors of doing that. You know, when I was a, a high school teacher, one of the things that I would always try and impart to my kids is the saying, repetition is the key to memory. And I would try and explain to them that the power of rote learning and the power of memorization. And in education, it's kind of, you know, Theo will tell you this, it, it's kind of gone away from the direction of exams. They, they do sort of one exam because they have to, but they want all of your other assessments to be something else because they're worried that you're gonna just regurgitate something that you've learned and you're not actually gonna have learned it, learned it. And I think that that misses a very powerful point here because all of the, the early sort of intelligence tests were linked to memory were about how well you could recall ideas and, and, and memorize. And sure, you might be regurgitating what you've understood and, and heard from someone else, but it's actually the ability to bring something from stored memory into your active recall that allows you to engage in critical thinking because you're able to engage with ideas that sit in different boxes in your head and you know, talk about how they interact with each other. And so memorization is definitely good for you and our powers of memorization are so much better than we think they are. You know, when you study ancient history and you, the earliest Western works that we have are the, the poems of Homer, which each of them is basically 24 books and it's in a, a, a verse called dactylic hexameter, which is just, you know, the way that Homer wrote. So it all, it's all in this particular rhythm. And the way that you would hear that is a bard would sing it to you from memory, all 24 books the whole story. Our powers of memorization are incredible, but unfortunately, we live in a, in a day and an age where memorization isn't necessary, where your pocket holds everything that you could possibly want to find at the touch of a button. And if you've been a teacher, man, it is frustrating to try and get through to, to teenagers who just look at you and say, it's like, I can just ask Google. Why do I need to memorize that? It's so unnecessary. And yet, and yet, there is such power to memorization, it's good, it's good for your brain. How much more if we are to internalize and to memorize scripture, which is good for your soul? How much more? You know, Psalm 1 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the ways of the wicked, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, nor stand in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, for he is like a tree that is planted by a stream, which yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not fall. In all that he does, he prospers. There is a great promise to internalizing, to memorizing and to knowing what scripture is. It is going to give food and fruit 
for your soul. I mean, that's a great promise. In all he does, he prospers, right? All you have to do is to, to, to you know, meditate on God's law. There are lots of other benefits to, being, to having this internalized, right? We know that when it comes to fighting temptation, there is no greater weapon than being able to quote the word of God because that's what Jesus himself did. When he was faced with this temptation, he knew what was right and what was not, and he was able to recall from Scripture exactly how that is. Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored your word up in my heart that I might not sin against you. And see, the internalizing of God's word is an incredibly powerful tool when it comes to defeating temptation and to living a life that is godly and holy and pleasing to him. And I've been doing my uh, devotional time in in the Psalms uh, for pretty much all of this year, and I'm up to Psalm 119, which for those of you who know is the longest psalm, uh, longest chapter in the whole Bible. And it's actually an acrostic poem in Hebrew. It takes each of the Hebrew letters of the alphabet and then gives a verse about each one. But there is a consistent theme that runs through the whole of Psalm 119, and I've already quoted some of it to you. And that is that it is the word of God which these, which these people are just holding with such high esteem. And, and it's more than just sort of rote learning. It's, it's, it's affection. If you read through Psalm 119 and you see just how much these, these psalmists who are writing, it's not just about reporting what the law says, it's actually about demonstrating a deep affection for it. And if we were to find uh, you know, any of these in Psalm 119, where's the one that I'm looking for? Psalm 119, verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me. And so it's not just like, God, I've memorized your word because it's the right thing to do, and I'm terrified of the consequences if I don't. No, it's like, God, I actually actually love it. I love your word. I love your law. Just think about that from a Jewish perspective, right? They're in this conversation, and they're like, oh, man, I just love God's law so much. Oh, which one? Which one's your favorite? I love the one about not mixing uh, the, the milk of a mother with the young of the, the calf. I just love, oh, me too. That's my favorite. Uh, you know which one I love? Not being able to walk more than a certain distance on the Sabbath. Isn't that brilliant? I, I hold with such a deep affection these laws. Oh, what about, oh, no, there are some hairy laws. We won't uh, go into those. <laughs> Caught myself there. I mean, just consider, is that not odd that they hold those laws with such a deep affection? That it's not just about rote memorization and rote learning and not about being an expert for the sake of being an expert, but it's about a deep love for being obedient to God and for knowing what God has said. You see, the thing is that knowledge puffs up, right? Knowledge without affection puffs up. But affection without knowledge is empty. So you need both. If you're pursuing, memorizing the word of God like the religious leaders were, but they were neglecting the weightier matters of justice and love and mercy, then it puffs up. 
But if you've got a, a desire and an affection for God and you love God and you think he's great, but, you, but you're not understanding his word and you're not looking to understand God more and more, then there's an emptiness to that. And you see, when we come to the scripture, we need to come with a sense of desire and a sense of affection. And let me tell you that that is the key to actually being motivated at all to memorize it, is that you have to love it. And that's not something that necessarily comes naturally. And I remember when I was, um, I'd just moved out of home and I'd moved into a place and, and didn't have any internet set up. I was living by myself and I'd just come from a home where everything was done for me. Everything was there. I had internet, I had my Xbox. Uh, and that's probably where I spent the vast majority of my time. Halo's, uh, sorry, Theo's grinning because he knows how much time I played Halo 3. Um, and we certainly had some, uh, some good moments. But I moved into a, into a situation where there was no internet, and so that gaming addiction basically got chopped off cold turkey, and I sat in this you know, cold uh, room with, with lino floors and a weird random pole, in the middle, uh, it was a classic bachelor house, and I twiddled my thumbs, and I didn't know what to do. And I felt God challenge me and say, what if you just read my word? What if you just read my Bible? And the embarrassing number of hours that I was putting into video gaming, I replaced with uh, reading God's word. And you know what happens? Is when you get into it like that, you grow that affection. You, you, you read it, and then you read it, and you're like, I wanna read this more and more. There's something beautiful and, and drawing about it when you actually get into God's word and you start thinking about it and praying through it. There's something that draws you in. And I can tell you exactly what it is. It's because this word is living and active and it's because it is actually the person of Jesus. We've talked about this before in our evening service and it's why when we come here and when we open the Bible, we expect God to speak. Because this is alive. And if you want to spend time with God, you can spend it in here, not puffing yourself up with knowledge, but growing your affection for the God who saves you. You know, it, it, it absolutely changed my world when I realized that this, these pages here are actually Jesus. And I've never been happy with how satisfactorily I've explained this to any group of people, but I'm going to attempt to do it again. <laughs> Because we know that in John chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it tells us that all things were made through him. And so we understand, based on our picture of the whole Bible, that there's this eternal trinity, three people, three persons in the one unified Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Son didn't become Son until he was born a Son. Prior to that, he had a different name, the book of John tells us that he always existed, right? Jesus was eternal. He was not created at that point in time. Jesus was eternally with God. And so he had a different name before he became the Son and before God became God the Father. It was God and then it was the Word and then it was the Spirit. All right, and so we see in the book of Hebrews when it says, in past times and in many of various ways, God has spoken to us through his servants, the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, through whom he made the world 
And who is he appointed at the, as the heir? And then it goes on to say that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And so God speaking, if, if, those, if the, that sound coming out, could, the particles could sort of form themselves into some physical expression, it would look like Jesus because it is Jesus. That second person of the Trinity, everything God has ever said has come through Jesus. In the Old Testament, when he's speaking the prophetic word, it is Jesus speaking to those people. And so when we encounter this word, when we read this, it is actually God speaking. And you know what? This makes the miracle of the incarnation even more apparent, right? Because Jesus said that he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus also said, I don't do anything unless I hear my Father say, I don't do anything unless I see my Father doing it, and I don't say anything unless I hear my Father saying it. Because Jesus himself is God's ultimate expression. He is the mouthpiece of God. This, this whole thing just goes so far because you know, we are meant to, as Christians, be little Christs. We're meant to emulate, to, to actually be formed into the image of Jesus, which means that God is to use us as his expression to this world. That the more and more we become like Jesus, the more God is able to speak through us to the world. And so when we read the Bible, it is the living word of God. It is the second person of Trinity. It is Jesus himself who speaks out of this. There's so many things. My mind is just going 100 miles an hour because you know when Jesus appeared to those disciples as they were walking on their way, uh, to, to Emmaus, to, on the Emmaus road, it says that he opened the scriptures and he showed to them, beginning from the start, all of the things and how, how it was him. It was Jesus from start to finish. And so that's why whenever we preach, wherever we preach, however we preach, whether it's from Genesis, <coughs> pardon me, from Haggai, from Revelation, it points to Jesus because he is the one about this, whom this book was written it is him. It is him and it is living and active. Basically, we've gone on a long tangent to say we should be memorizing God's word because you're taking into yourself the person of Jesus. There are so many benefits and there are no downsides. There are no downsides to internalizing God's word. And as you do that, God shapes you and God forms you. And you know what Stephen's moment here is? Is an exact fulfillment of Jesus' words in Mark 13, 11, where he says, don't be afraid when you're arrested and you appear before the leaders or before the people who have arrested you and who are questioning you. Don't be afraid about what you're going to say because you'll be carried along by the Holy Spirit. It'll be the Holy Spirit who's speaking to you in that moment. Oh, there you go. I didn't need to paraphrase it. I put it in the PowerPoint. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but... Say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, this verse is not an excuse to sit back and go, great, I don't need to do anything, because as soon as I'm in that situation, bam, Holy Spirit's going to come, and I don't need to know my A from my B. God is going to be able to just speak in that moment. No, <laughs> that's not what that verse is saying. It's saying you don't need to be afraid. Don't be worried you're going to be speechless. Don't be worried the power isn't going to be there because the Holy Spirit's going to carry you along. And see, Stephen is able to draw from a deep well that he has been digging his whole life, which is full of the riches of God's word. 
So if you want to be used by God in any situation that you find yourself in, get into God's Word because it will start coming out of you. If you want to be able to pray for somebody and encourage them and to hear God's voice for them, get into His Word because you hear what God is like, you hear what His heart is, and you are able to, to in that close relationship with Him, speak that over people. If you want to have victory over temptation and sin in your life, get into God's Word because the tools and the power is there. If you want to lead people in any capacity, and one of these is as a worship leader, right, because that is a theological spot to be able to lead. And, you know, we struggle to memorize scripture, but everyone here knows song lyrics, right? And so song lyrics are a much better way for us to be memorizing stuff, which is why it's important. If you know songs that, hey, this is directly from the Bible, great, store it in the bank. That's a very powerful thing. And that's the other thing that blows my mind about those verses in the Psalms is that these are songwriters who are saying this. Right? They are expressing theology. These, these songwriters, these worship leaders are so deeply affectionate for God's word that it comes out. And you know, we've all seen those moments when, when there's somebody leading worship and, and it gets into the, that moment where God is trying to say something but if you try and scratch below the surface, if there's nothing that's been happening inside that person, if that person hasn't been digging a deep well of knowledge and affection for God, then there's nothing to come out. But if the well is there, if the deep well, if the living waters are there, then that's when it comes out. So if you want any strategies to be able to memorize scripture, it's, it's difficult in uh, the lives that we lead, but you need to uh, give yourself some time. Find a time to do it. If you're a young person, I would encourage you. You've got more time than you ever will. Uh, it, may, it may be strange to hear that, but your life at the moment is, as, is the least busy it's going to be for many decades. So make the most of that time. Decide to consecrate yourself to God's word, to learn it to get into it, to love it, to grow that affection for it. Maybe some other strategies. I know some people who've been uh, getting on a Bible in a year app, which is a wonderful thing, and, and from hearing from those people, it, it stirs that affection. It's like, you know, I never thought I would read that much Bible, but, you know, getting into it, it's like I actually love it. Funny that. <laughs> it's like God promised that that would happen. Get into that. Uh, use an audio Bible on your, on your way to work, something. Uh, what, what is the one thing that you stare at more often than anything else? Put a Bible verse on your lock screen, on your phone, or on your background. And be intentional about, okay, I'm gonna have this verse here for a week, or for two weeks, or for three weeks, or however you're long, and then I'm not gonna change it until I memorize it. I don't know. Give it a go. Well, we should talk about Joseph. <laughs> Joseph has an incredible story. And to give you a, <laughs> I can't give you a briefer summary than this. This actually misses a lot of details. You know when Joseph was 17, he re received these visions, these dreams, and then he came to his brothers, his 12 older brothers. They were probably, many of them, in their 30s at this time. And he came to them and he was like, guys, I had this awesome dream. You just check it out. Uh, we were all like out harvesting stuff and then we all had bundles of wheat and then like my wheat stood up in the center and all of yours bowed down to it. Isn't that crazy? 
And his brothers looked at him and they hated him for that attitude. And then he had another dream, and then he shared it in front of everyone, including his dad. And he's like, wait, 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 this one, this one's great, this one's great. Even the stars and the moon and the sun was bowing down to me. Wild. And then it says that his dad rebuked him. He was like, don't say that. That's, you know, that's a clip over the, the back of the ears. Like, get some sense. You can't say that around, you know, your brothers. And what happens is that his brothers end up, you know, selling him into slavery uh, in Egypt. He goes into Egypt. He's in Potiphar's house where he gets, uh, you know, elevated to a status of uh, manager in there. You know, God's blessing him and doing stuff. And then uh, he's tricked by uh, Potiphar's wife or false accusations. And then he gets thrown in prison. And then there's uh, some people in the prison have a dream. And he's like, I'm a dreamer. And he interprets that because God's given him that gift. And then uh, that... Uh, later, that results in him interpreting the, the Pharaoh's dream about there being a big famine across the land. And so then he becomes the uh, prime minister, if you like, of Egypt. And it's a very difficult journey through that whole period of time. And Stephen summarizes it in one and a half verses. Get this. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions. Wouldn't you like that to be the, the, the summary of your life story? Because I think it's probably, if I'm, if I'm honest, the summary of my life story. <laughs> Many afflictions, but God's been there the whole time. Lots of trouble, but delivered every single time. You know, life is full of very difficult things, full of very difficult Moments and, and there are there are struggles in our life that are caused by any number of things. Sometimes it's it's unfair and it's opposition and it's trauma and it's it's other people doing terrible things. But in those moments, God is with you. And in the big picture, God's delivering you out of all those things. Sometimes it's your own sin that leads you into that moment. And can I say that God is still with you there and God has already made provision for you in that? Sometimes it's your mistakes. We can do some dumb stuff. It's very easy as a preacher to paint a very, you know, clean and, uh, you know, wise picture of myself, but man, I can do some dumb stuff. Like really dumb stuff. <laughs> You're laughing because you've seen me do it, Kay. That's important. <laughs> but God goes ahead of us, even in our mistakes even when we're, when we're foolish. God is there to cover over that. You know, God's gone ahead of you in every success, in every victory that you're gonna have as well. And so if you're in the middle of it at the moment, just zoom out. Zoom out, because long story short, many are our afflictions, but God is with us and has delivered us from all of them. And that's a wonderful truth. What makes the difference is the presence of God. So find where the presence of God is in whatever difficult situation, whatever struggle, or even whatever victory, whatever power, uh, place of power you're in, find the presence of God, because when your story gets told, that's really the important thing. God is with you. The other thing that I find incredible about Joseph's story is that He's given his dreams at the age of 17. 
And those are dreams which are quite a specific calling. It's a moment in time where he says, this is what's going to happen. This is what you're going to do. And who here longs for God to just tell them? You know, just tell me, God, what am I going to do? What's my life going to look like? Please, just, just give me that wisdom. And can I tell you, did it work out well for Joseph that he got that at the age of 17? Well, he didn't have necessarily a happy and, and awesome life for that time. You see, some people are given prophetic words by God that are specific callings upon their life, that are snapshots of the future. One day, this is what you are going to be doing. This is the type of thing you'll be doing or the way that God's going to use you. Awesome. That's great. But is it easy to get there? Usually never. (laughs) There's work that needs to be done on the way to get to there. There are other people who go through their whole life and never receive a word like that, who never have a clear picture spoken over their life and who long for that kind of thing. But let me tell you that the, the, the pathway is the same for both because we tend to think it's about function and God's saying it's about formation. But you think you, what's important is what you're going to do. God's saying what's important is who you're going to be, who I'm going to make you, and that is into the person of Jesus. That is closer and closer to the likeness of God, that we might be his witnesses and his mouthpieces to the world around us. And you see, Joseph had to go through a long pathway of being formed in the pit, literally in the pit. That's where he started, staring up at his brothers and then the faces of these foreigners who came to take him into Egypt. Then he was in the house of Potiphar as a slave. Then he was in literal prison for years until he ended up ascending to that status of uh, vice regional prime minister or whatever of Egypt. And it wasn't until he'd been through all of those trials and all of that formation that he actually steps into that one clear picture that God gave him earlier. And you know what? The transformation is incredible. (laughs) 13 chapters. I'm laughing because uh, you're, you're getting nine verses and I had to prepare through 13 chapters of Joseph's story, but go, go home and, and read it. Because the transformation, I found myself in, tearing up in the transformation of Joseph in this whole time. Because when he was 17 and he re- received this vision and he was an absolute brat to his brothers, and I'm sorry, but there's no mistake about it, I initially thought, like, maybe, maybe Joseph gets a bad rap. Maybe he wasn't such a, a you know, rat bag. And then I read it and I was like, no, that's pretty inexcusable. He goes from that, and it's by the time that he gets to, to chapter 48 or, or 49, and his, and his brothers are all there, his brothers are terrified because they've done this awful thing to him. No, it's chapter 50. It's definitely chapter 50. And they're terrified that he's going to do something to them, to embarrass them or, or to hurt them, because he is well within his rights to do that. And so they beg him, they beg him, Joseph, please, you know, f- forgive us. Uh, they try and trick him, and they say, look, your, your dad said this, you know, please don't, don't do anything to us. And Joseph, in that moment, throws himself over the necks of his brothers, weeping. And he says, am I in the place of God to do anything to you? You know, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And that is a very different man to the 17-year-old that was thrown in a pit by those very same people. And you see, that journey that he had to walk was one of formation, in order to get him to the point where he was able to, 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 to be in that function. So you might be here as somebody who's been given a very clear picture and a clear word about what you're going to do. Well, 
That might be a long journey, might be a difficult journey, but God is about forming you before that is ever going to eventuate. You might be here as someone who's never received a clear picture, who's never received a clear word about what you're going to do. Well, my advice to you is exactly the same. It's about formation. It's about being who God wants you to be. It's about every day waking up going like, you know what, God, I just want to love you more today. I want to be more like you. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what your job title is, what you spend your hours in the week doing. If you are focusing on being more like Christ, growing your affection and your desire for him, then you will be walking in the purposes of God for your life. I'll just invite the, the band up. And as we just come, there are these three things that I think we can reflect on, and, and you might be in one of these or maybe all three of these categories. But it's possible that there are some people here who sense that they need to consecrate themselves to the Word of God. We see a, a clear pattern in Scripture that in order for God's church to, to work, in order for the kingdom of God to go forward, there are people who are devoted to God's Word who then bring that out. I, I knew when I was probably 17 or 18 that that was going to be my life, and it was a 14-year a journey for me before actually getting to the point of you know, being in, a, in an employed position uh, as that. And so that, it might not end up in an employed position in a church or anything, but there might be a sense that, you know what, I just need to devote myself to God's Word. Maybe now's the season in my life where I need to just make it happen. And so if that's you, if you need to consecrate yourself to knowing and growing in your affection for God's Word, then you can do that during this moment as we worship. You can come and kneel or do whatever response God is asking you to do to say, you know what, God, I'm taking you seriously. You know, there was another moment in my uh, young adult life when, you know, I, the, the Xbox was gone. I didn't have any internet. I couldn't, I couldn't play it, but I still had a PlayStation, and that didn't need the internet. And I loved this particular game, and I worked very hard. I didn't need to play it on the internet. I got a lot of, you know, imaginary achievements in that game that I was very proud of as a, you know, early 20-year-old, whatever. And I woke up one day or, and, and God said, what if I told you today to put down that controller and never pick it up again? Would you be able to do that? Would, do you find me more important than that? And that was a, ch a challenge in that moment where, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't sinful. It wasn't bad to be, to be playing things like that. It wasn't a bad game. But God was saying, are you willing to put me in the right place in your life? And I have learned that if God says something to you, you're best off to say yes. Um, and so I put that away, didn't touch it again. And it's possible that God's calling somebody to a moment like that here. To say, today, moving forward, this is what you're about. The other response is that maybe there are there's someone here who's been chasing that function, who's been desiring a, a picture or a clarity about what you are going to do, and you need to shift your eyes off the function and start walking the journey of formation, of becoming the person that God wants you to be. So would you offer yourself to God for Him to form you? And then it's possible that there are some people here who are going through some stuff, and you need to zoom out 
you need to zoom out and see the bigger picture and you know that you know, many are my trials, but God is with me. And there's a, there's a song lyric. It's, I don't believe it's a Bible verse. Happy to be corrected on this. Um, that if, no, I'm pretty sure it's not a Bible verse. But if it's not good, God's not done yet. And uh, in, in some ways it seems like, oh, that's a bit shallow, <laughs> a bit trivial. But no, it's actually true when you understand it in the right context. Romans 8, 28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his name. For those whom he called, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. And so the good over your life looks like you being more refined into Jesus. So it's absolutely true that if the result in your life is not good yet, it's because God's not done. It's because he's working towards that. And the good in your life is not a Mercedes and a and a big house and, you know, no troubles. Maybe that's the bit that needs to change. God is working in your life for good. Maybe you need to change your goalposts and think, you know, where are we going? And, you know, there are some people who spend an entire life of toil and trouble and who never get out of the dust, and we are in a blessed country. If you've ever been on, on mission trips or you've been into a third world country, it's, it's very easy to get more of an appreciation for how blessed we are. But there are people who live in that situation who don't get out of it. They spend their whole life in that difficulty, in that hurt and that pain. And the hope for them is not that, you know, in, in 15 years' time, I will have finally paid off this mortgage and then I can relax. The hope for them is that after this difficult life, when I die... I'm with God. Because God is working in their life for good. And God will get them to the moment when all of that is stripped away and it's just Him. So would you take that peace and that encouragement and that comfort that God is with you? Zoom out. God is with you. We're going to close our eyes and and pray. And I'll just invite you to stand as well as we just prepare our hearts for, for worshiping God and responding and There'll be a ministry team over to the side here if there's anything that you would like to be prayed for. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word, for your word is good. And God, there is such a good reason that we gather here every week, twice on a Sunday, to open your word, to hear from you. And God, that practice is not dead. 2,000 years on, and even more than that, because your word is, is a lot older than that. That practice is still fruitful because it is your living and active word. And God, we ask that we would receive it into our hearts tonight, that you would use it to change and to shape and to mold us, that we would leave this place more like Christ than when we came, that we would have a deeper affection for what you've said. Lord, that we would pursue a stronger connection and a stronger knowledge and understanding in partnership with a deep affection for your love. God, I just want to pray a multiplication of blessing over the people here, that anyone who in this moment is deciding, you know what, I want to be serious about knowing and learning the Word of God, I just want to pray a blessing, a multiplication on that, that you would turn that into fruitfulness that they could not ever hope for or expect that there would be powerful encouragement and miracles and ministry that would come from that decision to consecrate themselves to the Word of God. Because it is you who are powerfully powerfully at work within us. God, would you help us all to know that you are with us?
through all of our afflictions and through all of our troubles and that in everything you are working to make us more like you. We pray that as a church, we would be more like Christ, that you would deal with the things in our lives that are not right, with the the idols, with the sin. And Lord, that you would even give us the, the energy and the drive to just be on fire for you, God. Because what else is there that is of any value and any purpose other than just being totally all in, sold out for you, God, and for your kingdom? We lift up your name now. We worship you, King of kings, Lord of lords. Thank you.